The first quotation on your handout is actually kind of the epigraph of the entire paper, and it's a quote from St. Thomas Aquinas's uh, disputed questions on truth. And Aquinas says that the true and the good include each other, since the true is a good and every good is true. Um, this goes right at the heart of Aquinas's transcendental philosophy, not in the Kantian sense, but in the medieval sense of the transcendentals being truth, goodness, beauty. Uh, and I think that seeing the way that true is contained in good and good is contained in true, and both of them are contained in being, is really the key to understanding this Aristotelian concept of practical truth. Okay, so Aristotelians distinguish between two different modes or aspects of human thinking, reasoning, and knowledge. The end for each human intellectual operation is the possession of truth. But Aristotelians claim that one can possess the truth in two fundamentally different ways. Theoretical thought and reasoning is successful insofar as it secures knowledge and the sense of coming to grasp true propositions about the way things are. Practical thought and reasoning, on the other hand, is successful insofar as it secures the truth that is possessed by living well or living the good life for a human being. To live well is to do the truth, to borrow a phrase from John's Gospel, and living well demonstrates a practical knowledge of how to live a good human life. And furthermore, as Aquinas insists, the end of practical knowledge is action. One who lives the truth, then, is himself the rule and measure of living well for a human being. But this measure is not grasped or conveyed primarily in what this person says or writes or in true propositions such a person could generally state. To do or live the truth is to possess the truth in a distinctive way, since it is possible and in fact quite common in human life to know the truth about what to do in a particular situation, but also quite generally, and yet culpably fail to do the truth. In the practical life, mere knowledge does not at all suffice. So let us call a view that distinguishes knowing and doing the truth an Aristotelian view, because the seeds of this view are in Aristotle, seeds that are cultivated into a mature theory of practical truth by the great scholastic Aristotelian, St. Thomas Aquinas. I do think that he is an Aristotelian. And um, another Aristotelian, G.E.M. Anscombe, who is a 20th century analytic philosopher, that's the tradition that I was primarily trained in, is also a proponent of the Aristotelian view. And just as Anscombe resurrected interest in a distinctively practical mode of thinking and reasoning, at least for analytic philosophers who had been ignoring it, she also tried, but I think failed, to generate interest in a distinctively practical mode of truth. In a sadly neglected article titled Thought and Action in Aristotle, Anscombe argues that the well-functioning of practical thought and reason is practical truth the sort of truth that she argues terminates in action. So in this talk, I'm interested in exploring the prospects for this sort of truth. The work is inspired by Anscombe, but I believe corrected in important ways by the thought of Thomas Aquinas. 
I wish to say that Anscombe was correct to argue that practical truth is most fully secured, not by thinking truly about living well, but by actually living well. So realizing the human good and your activity and action. And this takes agreement with right desire. But what does this agreement really amount to? What does it mean to require that truth agree with desire? What makes desire right? I won't be able to fully answer these questions, but what I hope to do is give us a framework for beginning to answer them in a principled way. So I want to argue that to make sense of practical truth as the kind of truth that is brought about by action, we have to defend six action theoretic theses. So I think you kind of have to start with thinking about action. And I have these six theses on your handout, so I'm not going to read them. Um, these are the six things that I think you have to go in for if you're going to make sense of practical truth. Um, so I will go through my reasons for wanting to accept these, um, and then I want to close by reminding us why we should care about practical truth, and I want to do that by thinking about virtue. Okay, so first some preliminary remarks on Aristotle and Anscombe. So since Aristotle is the source of the concept of practical truth, it seems reasonable to begin any discussion of practical truth with his own. Aristotle mentions practical truth exactly once. It's in book six of the Nicomachean Ethics. It occurs in his discussion of the virtues that perfect our intellectual powers. So Aristotle marks a division between cognition and desire. And onto that division, he grasps, he grasps a separation between intellectual virtues so those are the dispositions that perfect our capacities for knowledge uh, or the possession of truth through right reasoning and moral virtue. So moral virtues are those dispositions that perfect our powers of desire uh, to seek what is good and avoid what is evil. For Aristotle, there is no desire without cognition because the object of desire is given by a cognitive act. Um, you can't desire what you don't first, in some sense, perceive. So one seeks the perceived or known good. Since knowledge and desire are the primary sources of action, these capacities have to be properly habituated in order for us to act well as the kind of thing that we are, namely human beings. So the attainment of truth, Aristotle tells us, is the work or the function or the ergon of any intellectual capacity. It both defines and measures it as an intellectual power. So a judgment aims at truth, and it's good quay judgment if it's true, and it's bad quay judgment if it's false. A wise person possesses the truth about the most important things in either the theoretical or the practical domain. The work of moral virtue, by contrast, is about rectitude of desire. And Desire has to be understood in the broad Aristotelian sense that distinguishes between rational kinds of desires and different kinds of lower appetites um, that might follow reason, uh, but also might not. Aristotle tells us that rectitude of desire or appetite depends on right reasoning and judgment but also, and just as crucially, that right reasoning and judgment depends on rectitude of appetite. So you have to have both 
in order to be practically wise and live well. So to live well requires both well-habituated intellect and appetites, such that what one asserts as a matter of fact it is good to do, and what one actually pursues in action align in the right sort of way. If these conditions are in place, that is to say, if the logos is true and the desire correct, Aristotle thinks we can speak of, quote, practical thinking and of the attainment of a truth that is practical. He calls it the truth in agreement with correct desire. So that's what he says about practical truth. Um, I'm not an Aristotle scholar, and there are really legit Aristotle scholars in the room, so <laughs> I'm just going to limit myself to making a few points about this passage, uh, and only insofar as I think it will help us understand Anscombe's own analysis of it. Um, so first, I just want to remark that when Aristotle speaks of practical thought and reasoning, he means thought and reasoning that is essentially essentially aimed at acting. So that means it's thought undergone or taken up from the first person perspective with a view to acting rather than merely knowing. Because uh, Aristotle is clear that thought as such moves nothing. What moves rather is thought for the sake of something. So thought for the sake of something is practical. Second, it follows that thought for the sake of something, practical thought, implies desire. Um, desire in the Aristotelian sense is like a tendency towards the pursuit of the thing. Um, and when Aristotle thinks of pursuit, he thinks you know, of an end um, or a goal, something not yet <coughs> attained, um, and he thinks of the end uh, as a good. <clears throat> so practical thought and knowledge depend on desire. Um, for members of my professional class, that is to say, uh, analytic philosophers, um, if you say this, if you say practical thought and knowledge depends on desire, um, they kind of sense blood in the waters and attempt to go in for the kill. And the idea is that, oh, well, you know, Aristotle was a human, right? Um, no. Um, <laughs> It does not mean that he's a Humean. Um, in order for Aristotle to have a kind of Humean account of practical reason, he'd have to have a Humean account of desire, um, which he does not. Uh, I can talk about that in the Q&A if you want, um, but I just, I just want to forestall confusion. Um, there are, there's more than one possibility <laughs> for review in saying that practical thought and knowledge depend on desire. It doesn't mean that reason is a slave of the passions. Okay, so to return to the decidedly non-Humean thesis that practical thinking presupposes desire, let's consider four different people at a party enjoying some drinks. Uh, so there's one guy at the party who we're gonna say is living well. He's the temperate person. Um, so this guy drinks the appropriate amount he enjoys the pleasure of drink, but not so much as to impair his reason or his bodily health. So this person, you know, makes a good decision, acts well, his appetite has been habituated over time to enjoy drink properly. Uh, by contrast, the vicious person, so the intemperate guy, gets drunk, not even realizing that in so doing, he's failing to act well. 
So he thinks he's living his best life, he's totally drunk. Um, and he's enjoying himself immensely, he's having a blast. Um, let's just assume for the sake of argument that Aristotle's right, and that's not the way to go. Um, now we have, by contrast, so we have the temperate guy, the intemperate guy. Now we have what Aristotle calls the encratic or the merely self-controlled person. So this guy knows he shouldn't have that third glass of his host's rare bourbon. He really wants to have that third glass of his host's rare bourbon. Um, and though he refrains from taking it, okay, so he doesn't have it, but he leaves the party feeling sad, sort of like the loss of the pleasure he's denied himself. Um, so this is someone who chooses the right action, but on account of his inordinate desire, um, he acts in a divided way and with some difficulty. So he's suffering. He's clearly better off than the drunk, um, and his action deserves praise. So Aristotle is clear about that. Um, but on account of his inordinate desire, um, his action still falls short of temperance. It falls short of virtue. Um, and so it's not an example of living well. It's good, but it's not living well. And then finally, Aristotle talks about the acratic or maybe uh, the weak-willed person. Um, this is somebody who knows shouldn't have that third glass of bourbon, really wants the bourbon, um, and just has the bourbon, right? <laughs> uh, he's like, oh, I shouldn't do that, but whatever, it's Friday. Um, so again, here we have a kind of mismatch, right, between judgment, between knowledge and desire. He knows that it's really not good to have the third glass, uh, but he, he's not self-controlled, right? He takes the third glass, um, and later, maybe, maybe after he makes a complete ass of himself uh, at the party or the next morning when he has a headache, uh, he regrets his choice. Okay, so this fourfold division helps to bring out the ways that thought and desire can come apart in a human person. Obviously, when one's thought about how to live well is false, his desires can be correspondingly disordered. Um, so here you have desire following judgment, but your judgment's false. Um, so here you're just striving for a merely apparent good rather than a true good. But one's thought might be true, and one's desires simply not follow one's thoughts, in which case one is unable to live well. It's better to be encratic than acratic, um, but it's best to be virtuous. So acting well does require a true logos that is in agreement with correct desire. So practical thought is truly excellent only insofar as it agrees with right desire, an agreement that, it sure, that ensures one is after the correct ends and that makes executing one's choices something that one can do with ease and pleasure. So for Aristotle uh, and also for Aquinas, um, it's not enough that you just choose the right thing. Um, if you're living well, um, this shouldn't be like, really hard for you. Um, now, I don't want to get into how to parse that in hard cases, but just in a general way, um, making good choices uh, shouldn't be gratuitously painful. 
So for Aristotle, practical thought begins with something wanted, some human good at a distance that you don't yet have. And it makes its way down to an action that could realize that good in the world here and now. It moves from the general and the abstract to the particular and the concrete. So on this picture, thought isn't practical in virtue of its content. Um, so it's not just thought about the good or the human good or even my own good. It's practical because of its starting points. Um, Katya did an amazing job in establishing that, you know, the general starting point for a human is to live well. You want things to go well for you in your life. Um, and that's the basis. That's like, in some sense, the ultimate basis or explanation of what you're up to. Now, if practical thought essentially aims at acting such that the proper conclusion of a practical syllogism is an action and not simply a judgment, then I think Anscombe is correct to say that practical judgment must terminate in action. So she writes that we can speak of practical truth, and this quote's on your handout, when the judgments involved in the formation of the choice leading to the action are all true. But the practical truth is not the truth of those judgments, but is truth in agreement with right desire. I want to just slightly restate Anscombe's claim by saying practical truth is not the truth of those judgments simpliciter. For if truth is the proper work of the intellect, as Aristotle rightfully insists, then it must be the judgment that's true. That is, the practical judgment has to be the bearer of the truth, as it makes no sense to speak of truth without an operation of intellect. Um, this pertains to its nature as judgment. I believe that Anscombe accepts this. So I have a little quote on the handout from Intention, where she seems to simply state this as a fact about truth being defined in relation to intellectual operation. So it's the judgment that's true. But what makes the truth practical is that it is in agreement with correct desire. And this agreement is part of our evaluation of the judgment itself because of the kind of truth that pertains to it as a practical judgment. So it's not a conjunctive definition that Aristotle gives, at least not as Anscombe interprets him. That is, it's not truth plus something else. Oh, correct desire. Um, precisely because it's not a regular old judgment plus certain other conditions. To say this, I think, radically misunderstands the inherent teleology of practical thought, reasoning, and judgment, whose characteristic activity is such as to attain the kind of truth that agrees with correct desire and therefore leads to the execution of a good choice in action, the sort of action that can be truthfully characterized as living well. So just to kind of gen up some intuitions for this, um, we can look at the differences in the two kinds of judgment. So here's a judgment. Candace Vogler is a philosopher. So long as I have grasped things aright with the world, there exists a woman, her name is Candace Vogler, she writes and teaches philosophy, then the judgment is true. Uh, here's a different kind of judgment. I should brush my teeth tomorrow morning after breakfast. Let's suppose this is also true. It seems really true to me. Um, but in order for this truth, for, in order for this judgment, that I should brush my teeth tomorrow morning after breakfast to be practical, rather than simply 
a speculative judgment about a practical matter, I have to have made it within a deliberative context. That is to say, first personally, I made this judgment with a view to bringing it about that I will actually brush my teeth tomorrow morning. And the judgment has to be justified in light of the things I'm after in my life. Good oral health, fresh breath, clean teeth, a bourgeois appearance, etc. And it further must become the grounds of it. I'm not going to prioritize those. <laughs> throw them all in. It further must become the grounds of a choice, I realize, in acting the following day. And this is compatible, by the way, with saying, uh, again, as Katya emphasized in her um, talk, that the ground might just be habit, right? So it's not like I have to like reason out every morning anew that I'm going to brush my teeth. Um, usually when I do it, I'm half asleep. Um, but it's like, I don't know, like if my three-year-old comes up and is like, what are you doing, mom, and why? Like I can give him a story and it's legit. Um, okay, so, but if I never brush my teeth, let's say because I forget or I can't find my toothbrush because the house catches on fire and I can't get to the bathroom, then the judgment is never practically true. For the judgment to attain its practical truth, it has to be the case that it is in fact good to brush my teeth at the appointed hour, and I actually brush my teeth on the rational grounds that makes this the case. Of this sort of truth, Anscombe writes that it is brought about or made true by action, since the description of what he does is made true by his doing it, provided that a man forms and executes a good choice. Now, this is the quote that tends to flip everyone out. What do you mean it's made true? Anscombe obviously does not mean that the act of brushing my teeth is what makes it true that I ought to brush my teeth. But that does not mean that she wants to separate truth from action either. But to say what she does mean requires that we go beyond the materials that Aristotle himself gives us. Specifically, I think Anscombe means that the practicality of the truth lies in the fact that I make things happen in the world and that what I make happen when I am, when I am executing a choice that I've made um, are made true under descriptions that are given by practical judgment and that are only realized when, agreement, when in agreement with desire. Um, so this idea of intentional action descriptions or the intentionality of, of practical thinking, this is the stuff of intention as I read it. Um, and that's a, that's a departure from Aristotle. Aristotle doesn't have a theory of intentionality as far as I can tell. A further departure from Aristotle is the idea that the actions of the wicked or the weak-willed or the just plain ignorant will produce practical falsehood. Um, so Anscombe writes, the man who forms and executes an evil choice will also make true some description of what he does. He then will have produced practical falsehood. Okay, um, so here's, here's just like a sketch of how I want to understand Anscombe on practical truth. Practical truth is fully secured by actions that can be truthfully described at the most general level of intentional action description as living well, or living well for a human being. So although the bearer of a practical truth is a judgment, 
Because practical judgments, at least for Anscombe, are the formal causes of both choice and action, uh, there's a legitimate sense in which practical truth can be applied directly to actions. And that is, insofar as in acting, an agent makes true the descriptions under which she acts as indicative of her practical judgment and choice. Again, all the way up to the most general, voluntary, or intentional act description of living well. So judgment alone doesn't secure practical truth because a judgment is only practical when it's made within a practically deliberative context, a context that presupposes a conception of living well as a goal to be pursued through such actions. Such a practical judgment is only practically true when what is judged is made true by being realized in action. Such realizations only come about when the judgment agrees with correct desire. So that's like the basic sketch that I want to go in for. How do we get there? The first thing we have to do is think about practical knowledge of intentional descriptions of actions. This is basically like practical intentionality. Um, I think this topic is really hard and complicated and I've written a lot about it and now I'm gonna give like a really quick and dirty sketch. Um, I'm not gonna fill in any of the details and I'm not gonna argue for any of it. <laughs> uh, but just, I'm, I'm happy to talk more about it. Um, but here's the basic idea. Um, and this is, this is something that uh, contemporary philosophers of action have taken out of Anscombe and Davidson. And the idea is this. Look, we act. We act for reasons. Um, and we cause all this stuff to happen. Um, so just to take an example from Donald Davidson, Jones walks into a room and flips a light switch. In doing that, Jones moves such and such particles about. He tenses and flexes such and such muscles. He raises his arm. He illuminates the room. He casts a shadow on the wall. He makes a clicking noise. He wakes up the unsuspecting dog and alerts a prowler to the presence of the owner of the house and so on, right? So really simple things, just flipping the light switch and all this just causes all this stuff to happen. Um, Davidson calls that the accordion effect. So all of these descriptions of what Jones does are perfectly true. But not all of these descriptions pick out what Jones causes to happen as a matter of his will and practical reason. Those are the intentional or the voluntary descriptions. And what Anscombe says really at the outset of intention is that a theory of action has to give some way to sort out the intentional from the unintentional descriptions of what one does every time one acts as a human being because only the former kinds of descriptions are of concern to the sort of responsibility that lies at the foundation of morality and law. Okay, so we have, to, we have to have a principled way of saying which descriptions of what you do pick out what you do um, in the properly human way. So one thing that Anscombe makes clear is that an intentional description is one the agent has to apply to her own actions and she can only do this if she has a special sort of knowledge of them. So Jones cannot be intentionally alerting the prowler if A, he has no idea a prowler is there, and B, he has no desire to alert him. Anscombe calls the knowledge that a person has of what she does under intentional descriptions, knowledge and intention, which she later characterizes as a kind of practical knowledge. 
One displays possession of such knowledge when one is able to give sincerely true answers to a special sense of the question why. True answers are supposed to reveal one's reasons for acting. Okay, so uh, that's a basic Anscomian commitment. If we think about that commitment, then we begin to notice in general that when we ask somebody why they're doing what they're doing, uh, their answers tend to refer to something else they're doing in some sense. Uh, so for instance, I'm standing at the podium pacing. Uh, why are you doing that? I'm giving a talk. Well, why are you giving a talk? Um, you know, because I'm a professor and I give talks. Why are you a professor? Um, it turns out that the explanation of what I do refers to these other things that I'm engaged in, right? What I'm doing right now is advancing uh, other things that I'm up to in life. Um, and the, the why question is kind of a device for picking out the way in which what I do now um, is made fully intelligible or more intelligible in terms of things that are ongoing, um, commitments that I have that are much broader. And so you see the present in terms of a life that's in progress. Now, Anscombe thinks that there has to be some connection between the self-conscious application of an action concept to what one does and having a reason for doing it. Um, she takes this to be obvious and basic. Anscombe understands that connection in terms of knowledge of one's reasons that informs the order of one's present undertaking. So what my answers to the why question bring out are my practical reasons, and my practical reasons are ultimately cashed out in terms of the ends that I'm up to. Um, so my present activity is ultimately made sense of in terms of the ends for the sake of which I'm doing it. Since the will is our capacity to make things happen in accordance with our practical thought about what ought to happen, so it's a rational kind of desire, what is an object of will must be known under descriptions that connect intentional action descriptions to one's, to one's further ends or goals, and ultimately to one's general vision of how to live. Without such a vision of what is good and bad in human life quite generally, so what's worth pursuing and what as a result needs avoiding, we just wouldn't have reasons for acting at all. Um, so I think we learned from intention that human, which maybe we knew anyway, uh, that human actions are rationally ordered, but the order that we find in them comes from practical reason and will. So we discover this order through reason and we impose it on the world through our actions. So one of the central lessons of intention is that the order of an intentional action is the order of an agent's practical reasons. Um, and I think that this is really the key to understanding what the object of knowledge and intention is, this practical knowledge, um, which is the same as the question of what intentional descriptions are descriptions of. They are not, as most contemporary philosophers insist, a description of something inner, of your intentions, your plans, or your beautiful thoughts. What is known, rather, is the action itself, so an observable, datable event that's part of the causal flux of the world. 
So Anscombe proposes the slogan, I do what happens, which she glosses as follows. When the description of what happens is the very thing which I should say I was doing, then there's no distinction between my doing and the things happening. So in the paradigmatic case, an agent's practical judgment to fi and her fying are one and the same reality. They're one and the same reality. So on her view, an action isn't a kind of separately specifiable effect of some prior cause, but a material process that's constituted by the agent's own thought and reasoning. In this sense, knowledge and intention is the cause of what it understands. It's going to follow that a failure of such knowledge is not a mismatch between two separate realities, intentions and actions, but a failure of one and the same practically rational activity to be fully realized in the world. So from the practical point of view, you could think of this kind of failure, a practical failure, as a failure of self-determination or self-constitution, uh, rather than the traditional picture of epistemic failure as some kind of failure of correspondence. Okay, now practical reasoning. So if we say that the unity of an action is the unity of an agent's practical reasoning, then we would expect to see this kind of unity displayed in an account of the practical syllogism. And this is exactly what you find in Anscombe. Now for Anscombe, a syllogism isn't something that you run through your head prior to acting. Um, it doesn't describe a psychological process. Um, you could think of the syllogism as a formal representation of a practical argument. So it's going to be a representation of how the performance, so an action, which Anscombe is thinking of as the conclusion, preserves the good intended in the premises. Um, so I think Anscombe is committed to the idea that for any intentional action, um, it's possible to represent it in the form of a syllogism. Um, okay, so I don't want to get too much into the syllogism. Um, maybe I'll just say that the starting point of the syllogism um, is supposed to be something wanted in a specifically rational sense. So whatever figures in the first premise is going to be the object of an intention. So this, in conjunction with premises stipulating whatever the means are to realizing it, yields a conclusion that is an action, an action which preserves the good stated in the first premise. So the actions made practically intelligible in light of the premises, which show what good or what use the action is. Now, intentional descriptions are the ones that can potentially figure in the construction of such a syllogism. So to know what one is doing under intentional descriptions is also necessarily to know why one is doing it. So what the syllogism shows is that we're talking about one and the same form of practical self-knowledge. Okay. Um, in a sadly neglected paper called Practical Inference, Anscombe notes that inference is related to the concept of validity. And moreover, that the validity of an inference is supposed to be of a certain formal character, the appreciation of which is connected with the evaluation of grounds, qua grounds. She argues that, look, if there's a unique form of practical inference, then its validity has to have a different kind of ground than the validity of a theoretical inference. Um, a difference ultimately grounded in 
the unique starting points and aims of the two types of reasoning. So practical reasoning begins with something wanted. She agrees with Aristotle that to want something is to possess a tendency towards making the thing actual. For this reason, things are wanted under some description, an agent can first personally connect with her general conception of how to live, how to go on with life, what to go after. Um, now, if we think that all of that way of thinking about practical reasoning is sound, um, then Anscombe thinks that we have to think of practical validity um, in a different sort of way than we think of theoretical validity. Um, and the way that Anscombe wants to think of it is she wants to think of practical validity as goodness-preserving rather than truth-preserving. So um, I think the ultimate basis of this is in the difference between cognition and appetite. Um, I think she discusses this a little bit in intention. Again, you can refer to the quote on your handout. Um, but basically what I think is going on here is as follows. Anscombe is following Aquinas and thinking that good is the formal object of a power of will. So that's a specifically rational kind of desire. Just as truth is the formal object of a power of judgment. So just as you believe P, and so far as you take P to be in some sense true, you want to phi in the rational sense, and so far as you take phying to be in some sense good, that is to say worth pursuing or realizing. Now the conceptual relation between wanting to phi and phying being good grounds the claim, and I think is the only ground of the claim, that goodness preserving is the essential associate of validity and practical inference. Uh, just as the conceptual relation between belief and taking P to be true grounds the claim that truth preservation is the essential associate of validity and theoretical inference. Um, so to get slightly more technical, if we talk about the rules of valid argument and the theoretical mode, these are designed to ensure that in reasoning one will never pass from a proposition that is true to a proposition that is false. If there are rules for practical inference, then they must ensure that in reasoning one will never pass from an end that is good to the pursuit of an end through an action that is bad. Just as the truth of the premises is communicated to the truth of the conclusion in a valid theoretical argument, so too the goodness of the initial practical premise is communicated to the conclusion, which is acting in a way to realize that good concretely. So truth in the practical order is like all elements of the practical order for the sake of realizing the good. It is the emphasis on realizing the good, on making the perceived good actual, that explains why practical inference is described as goodness preserving rather than truth preserving. But of course, the good must be truly perceived in order for the good to be preserved. So on Anscombe's view, a syllogism is going to be practically valid if its conclusion is the execution or realization of the apprehended intentional AD order outlined in the premises, and if what is so specified meets some determinate measure of correct calculation. So if what is chosen is actually a correct means to realizing the end, an action that meets this criteria will be practically true insofar as in drawing the conclusion which for Anscombe is the same as acting, one is making true or realizing 
the apprehended intentional order specified in the premises. In the case of a merely valid practical syllogism, what is made true is that what happens can be truthfully described in accordance with intentional descriptions specified in the premises. This is the truth one produces in acting, or truth in agreement with desire, that Anscombe discusses. Insofar as in producing this truth, one realizes one's reasons, what one takes to be justified in the practical sense, one takes oneself to be realizing the practical good. But validity is not the final analysis of an argument. A good argument should also be sound. So truth in agreement with desire is not sufficient for practical truth in the fullest sense. This would be truth in agreement with correct desire or the realization of intentional descriptions that are not merely a correct means to one specified end, but moreover are correct means to an end that is truly judged as good. When one wants and seeks the truly perceived good, in other words, when one is good, and further calculates well and acts in such a way as to realize it, one can be said to do the truth, to live well. So now is my little slogan, uh, which actually isn't mine. I borrowed this from Reinhard Hooter, um, who is a, is a friend of mine and a, and a theologian at, at CUA. Um, but here's the slogan. To be good is to do the truth, right? Um, lovely slogan. Okay. So what's the measure of correct desire being invoked here? Um, well, that's a hard question. Uh, to begin to answer this question, we have to say more about the sort of intentional object in the first premise of the syllogism. If you think about the, the first premise of a syllogism uh, in Anscombe's sense and intention, you're thinking about something uh, that the agent's after, um, the agent's trying to calculate how to get. Um, we get to the question, well, should they really be after that? Um, that's a question that's going to bring in a lot of other things that are going on in the agent's life, uh, facts about the circumstances in which the agent finds herself, um, and ultimately it's going to bring in um, some, some, some kind of vision of like how to go on in general, uh, what, it, what it's good to go after in life. Um, all of this is going to determine what you ought to be after here and now in this situation. Um, and this, 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 this kind of, um, I don't know, uh, practical deliberation, um, it's also going to extend to the means. So like when you think about the means to your end, uh, you're also going to be constrained by the facts about your situation, but also the facts about your life and progress and what you do and you, and you can't do. Uh, Katya spoke very well about this, so I don't really have anything to add to that. Um, I just say that I think all of that's in Anscombe. Um, okay, so if we think about the first premise, uh, we're not thinking about a like an ultimate first premise, um, but I think that the determination of what goes into the first premise is ultimately constrained by what you might call ultimate first premises. Okay, um, so there's that. 
So there's a look to a wider context um, of what's going on in, in your life and the kind of thing that you are. Okay, now I want to talk about uh, wider, wider or more general uh, level intentional descriptions of your actions. Um, I think that Anscombe, and this is um, going out on a limb a little bit, but I think that Anscombe is committed to the Aristotelian Thomas thesis that all human action is moral action. This becomes really clear in her later papers. Um, the only real question is, did she have this commitment and intention? I think probably. Um, what does this mean, every human action is moral action? I think it just means that every human action is either good or bad. What does that mean? I think it means that every human action is either an instance of living well or it's not. That doesn't mean that um, every human action is really important <laughs> or that like a lot hangs on it. Um, it just means that it's either living well or it's not. And that just means that um, it's either good in every respect that a human action could be good, um, which just means there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> it's not bad in any way. Um, so if there's nothing wrong with you um, having a nice glass of bourbon by the fire on a Friday night because you don't owe anybody anything and nothing's going on and you need some time to relax and whatever, uh, there's just nothing wrong with it, um, then that's, a, that's living well, right? Um, so I think that Anscombe is, is committed to this idea. Um, and I think if we, I think that this becomes very important to understanding the concept of, of practical truth. Um, so in a, in a much later paper um, called Practical Truth, um, Anscombe introduces a special kind of multiplicity of levels of description of human acts. So this stuff is also on your handout. And she's explicit that the series of descriptions that she has in mind is connected with a special sort of developing series of true answers to the question, what for? And she notes that legitimate answers typically reveal uh, intentional descriptions of what you're up to. Okay, so here again she's following Aristotle and associating desire with pursuit or delight, <coughs> acting for the sake of a good or avoiding an evil. The desire involved in action explanation, she says, is ultimately a desire of doing well, eupraxia. Both the wicked and the virtuous person wants this. And here's a quote from the paper. At some level of characterization of his action, the wicked man's will be false. The falsehood may be an earlier characterization, for example, helping your neighbor is doing well, but killing someone for them is not helping them. And the desire or will and choice will be for this end doing well, whether the choice is that of the good or the bad man. Now, in order to make sense of this, Anscombe introduces the idea that there are different levels and kinds of wanting, and that not everything one wants in acting is the result of some self-conscious decision. Wanting to be happy, for instance, or wanting to live well isn't chosen. Rather, it's the necessary condition for the possibility of choice at all. So Anscombe further argues that practical truth is truth created by action. It might be called praxistic truth in order to emphasize that it is truth brought about by a praxis resulting from deliberation. 
i.e. by an action and fulfillment of a choice which satisfies the description doing well. That is a final description of what every praxis, every action in this limited sense aims at being. This makes clear what practical falsehood would be. The agent chooses and he wants and believes the actions that he chooses to be a case of doing well, and it is not. So a wicked man has false beliefs about how to live and wants to pursue ends he should not pursue, and he acts from choice just as much as the virtuous person does, which means that he acts on practical grounds that ultimately refer to his vision of how to live well. So, and again, this is a quote from Anscombe's paper, if a choice is to be sound, not only must the thought be true, but the thinking must name and the desire must pursue the same things. The names and the relevant thoughts will finally and most importantly include doing well, but also names like getting wealth, avoiding taxation, making friends, or again paying bills and fighting a duel. The names must all be true of what is actually done, and if they're not, then the agent's thoughts are not true and his will may not be right. I think it's clear from this passage that Anscombe thinks that practical truth is predicated not only relative to the content of descriptions and their form, but also the level of generality of description. So uh, it's, it's not simply that we do have these ground level descriptions of intentional actions, although we do, and those are very necessary. Um, but for every ground level intentional action description, like you know, I'm bumping my arm up and down, I'm replenishing the water in the cistern, uh, I'm poisoning some Nazis, right? That higher level description of poisoning some Nazis, uh, Anscombe thinks is, is just kind of like the primary intentional description is what you're really up to when you're moving your arm up and down. Um, but it's not the highest level description, um, right? Um, because poisoning some Nazis be truthfully described as murder. Uh, now, is murder living well? Um, so Anscombe thinks that, like, ultimately, for any of these intentional descriptions that we can give, all of which have to uh, be in accordance with her theory of, of intentionality that will pick them out as intentional descriptions, um, which makes a central reference to the good um, and one's reasons. Every single one of them is either practically true in the sense that it is living well, it could be truthfully described as living well, or it can't. And if it can't, it's practical falsehood in her sense. Uh, but I don't think, uh, I, just, I just don't think you can get that move without introducing uh, this idea of higher levels of generality of intentional description. And I think that that's going to take us some way towards addressing. And so I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm like really cautious here. Um, I'm especially cautious in front of this audience, but I'm cautious in general. But I'm, I'm thinking of Candace's talk yesterday and the question about you know how does the really high stuff inform like the really low stuff? Uh, and ultimately, um, I want to say that you know, what we're talking about is levels of generality. And I think ultimately we need an account of how the highest level of generality of practical or intentional action description, and that would be the description living well, 
um, we need an account of how that informs the first premise of a practical syllogism in Anscombe's sense, but then also how that makes intelligible like you moving your arm up and down. What do we say of the vicious man's knowledge of his actions? So let's go back to our drunk at the party. He thinks that in taking the third drink, he's living well. But he's wrong that he ought to take the third drink. And of course, he knows in the practical self-knowledge sense that he's taking the third drink for the sake of the sensual pleasure it brings him. So on the account of um, Anscombe that I'm envisioning here, on one level of description, he knows what he's doing. But on a higher order level, he doesn't. So the lower level particular descriptions are internally related to the higher order general descriptions, such that failure to know what one is doing is failure to know what you're doing at a higher level description that you do apply to what you're presently doing just as much as you do the lower level descriptions. So while you truthfully apply the lower level descriptions to your own actions, you falsely apply the higher level descriptions. And that's gonna come out in your responses to the why questions, right? So if somebody keeps pressing you, your answers are gonna become less and less convincing. So like we can grant you that, you know, taking the third drink, yes, it will give you sensual pleasure. Um, no denying that. Um, and yeah, we can totally make sense of what you're doing because um, we all understand why you would go after sensual pleasure. Um, but you're, but but if we press you on that, um, and we try to give you an account of, of why you should be, if we keep pressing the why question, the idea is that your answers are going to come less and less convincing as uh, true answers to the question. OK, so virtue. Let us assume with Aquinas and Aristotle that virtue is necessary but not sufficient for living well. Let us assume that virtues perfect our human capacities such that we're able to direct them towards the creation and maintenance of a good human life. Let us assume that the virtuous person is one who possesses practical truth and lives well. And it's because he attains this truth that we rightly say he's the rule and measure of good or bad human action, and that such a person is an exemplar for those who wish to grow in virtue. Those who wish to grow in virtue are those who possess some practical truth, but not the fullness of it. The fullness of practical truth requires both practical wisdom and moral virtue. Why does it require both? Um, I think we can see this more clearly by thinking about Aquinas on the cardinal virtues. So this is prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude. Aquinas teaches that prudence secures the good of practical reason through right practical judgment. Justice executes or realizes this good in our external actions. Fortitude protects the good of reason by training our fears so that we hold fast to the truth in the face of extremely difficult circumstances. And temperance safeguards the good of reason against sensual desires that draw us away from it. So while prudence disposes a person to make good practical judgments, this depends on the person having rectitude of will which further depends on having rectitude of passions and sensual desires. For fears and bodily pleasures distract the mind and cloud our judgment, which can lead us to perform actions that are manifestly unjust. Fear can drive us to abandon our friends, lust can lead us to commit adultery, and so on. Aquinas' definition of moral virtue 
is that it preserves reason. He is clear that in order to attain practical truth or exercise practical wisdom, you have to have the virtues or well-habituated appetites. And this is going to lead me to what I swear is my final point. And this, I think, is really the deep insight about practical truth and what you might call the interdependence of wisdom and right appetite. A human person cannot see things rightly without wanting and feeling rightly. Disordered desire distorts our perception of reality. It leads us to direct our attention to features of the world that conform to our desires and ignore those that don't. Self-deception is a result of this narrowed vision of reality, a vision whose roots ultimately lie in a kind of disordered self-love. So in order to become virtuous, we need to be exposed to those who possess practical truth, those who live the truth or do the truth, and thereby make real human excellence for us. We need to see right practical reasoning on display in virtuous lives so that we can make progress in virtue by imitation. Um, okay, I'll just end that. Thank you.